Our subject in this hour is the doctrine of original sin. And I congratulate you for coming because this is not a topic that excites interest in most people. And yet, this is one of the most important doctrines in all of Christian theology. And in fact, it's so important that if you deny this doctrine, you can't really even call yourself a true Christian. You're not a true Christian if you deny this doctrine. Deny original sin, and you cannot consistently affirm the doctrine of justification by faith, which is to say that if you deny the doctrine of original sin, there's no logical way you can believe the gospel itself. Uh, It's that important. And in fact, if you ranked the relative importance of truths in the evangelical credo, the doctrine of original sin would rank right up there with the deity of Christ and the doctrine of bodily resurrection and the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture and the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. All of those are tied together in the gospel. And the doctrine of original sin is one of those absolutely vital, foundational, essential doctrines that if you get it wrong, it will have cascading effects through all of your soteriology. It's a doctrine that often gets ignored or glossed over, and yet this is literally the biblical starting point for a sound soteriology, and I want to treat it that way this morning. First, they asked me to recommend a book that goes with everything I've done. I recommended, I think, two books for my session last week on Cotton Mather. Uh, On this one, I tried hard to come up with a book I would recommend dealing only with the doctrine of original sin, and it made me realize somebody needs to write a really good book on this subject. But the book I want to recommend to you is one that just came out, written by Dr. Kevin Zuber, who teaches here at the seminary. It's a much broader book than just original sin, but he covers the doctrine of original sin in it. The book is called The Essential Scriptures, and uh, it's brand new from Moody Press. They have it in the book shack. And there's just a short section on original sin, but it's perfect. He covers all the pertinent scriptures and explains the doctrine well, and it's it's a fairly element, much more elementary approach to the doctrine than we're going to take here. But he covers it probably better and more clearly than I'm going to. So if my voice gives out, run over, buy that book, and you can read about this doctrine in abbreviated fashion. I said... This is literally the starting point for a biblical doctrine of salvation. It's a fact that in the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul lays out his most detailed and systematic explanation of the gospel, he starts talking about the gospel, you know, right there in the beginning, in chapter 1, around verse 16, where he says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's his first mention of gospel, Uh, where he's going to give an explanation of the gospel. And notice what he says. The gospel is for salvation, is the power of God for salvation. He expressly says it's about salvation. The gospel, you know, is not about reforming culture or saving the planet. It's about saving everyone who believes. It says right in that verse, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he goes on, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there he's quoting an Old Testament verse. But in other words, what he's saying is that the central theme of the gospel 
is the righteousness of God. And it is gospel, that is good news, because it not only lays out the amazing means by which God saves believers, but the gospel itself also embodies the power of God by which he accomplishes the miracle of salvation for sinners. So that's really good news, right? But it doesn't start out sounding that way. Because Paul's very next words are, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he goes on for most of the first three chapters of Romans, making the point that humanity's sin problem is universal. It touches all of us. Romans 3, verses 9 and 10, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that, Paul says, is the starting point for understanding the gospel, that we are all hopelessly in bondage to sin. We we are all of us. This is why we need a Savior, What he's saying is this, humanity, the human race, is not fundamentally good. It is fundamentally evil. And the Old Testament says this as well, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And that is a description of every human heart. It's saying the human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. As David wrote, I was guilty before I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. That's Psalm 51. That's where the title for this seminar came from. And that, of course, is the the doctrine of universal depravity, meaning that all of us are sinful. No one escapes that verdict. Now, I think the average person who is untaught and unfamiliar with what the Bible says, the average person thinks that people are born as babies, totally innocent, morally blank slates, and then by their own free will, they at some point decide whether to sin or not. But here's the problem with that. Number one, it contradicts the obvious fact that everyone, no exceptions, everyone does sin. And number two, it contradicts what Scripture says. Scripture expressly teaches that we are born sinners. The Bible repeatedly says that no one is righteous and no one is morally neutral. Romans 3, verses 11 and 12. And here, Paul himself is quoting from some assorted Old Testament texts in order to make his point. Scripture says, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So then the question arises, how did the human race get into that condition? And the answer to that question, how, did, how is it that the entire race is fallen and sinful and incapable of saving itself... How did that happen? The answer to that question is the doctrine of original sin. And there is one key text in Scripture that spells this out clearly and explains it for us, and it's in Romans chapter 5. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Romans 5, we're going to look at verses 12 through 21. And while you're turning there, let me give you a definition. The doctrine of original sin is the truth that when Adam partook of the forbidden fruit... 
that one act of disobedience, that one thing that he did, resulted in the fall of the entire human race. Adam's sin left us all guilty and morally corrupt. And, and that's, every word of that is important. It left us guilty and morally corrupt. So the source of humanity's sin problem is traceable back to one man and a single act of disobedience. And that's what this passage is saying. And it says it about six times in different ways. But this is the point, that the source of the human race's sin goes back to one man and a single act of disobedience. In the words of a, a Puritan alphabet that was written for children, Adam's fall condemned us all. That's the simple truth. That's as simple as I can make it. Adam's fall condemned us all. Original sin. Now, the point of that expression, original sin, is not to suggest that Adam was the first human being that ever sinned because he wasn't, right? Eve sinned first. I mean, the feminists never ask this question, really. Eve sinned first. Why wasn't her sin the one that gets blamed? Why does Adam get blamed for the fall of the human race when actually Eve was the one who lured him into sin and by example drew him into sin, and yet it's Adam's disobedience that was the crucial act. Why is that? And Scripture explains. That's what we're going to see this morning. Uh, In fact, I propose to answer that question from Scripture in this session really from this one passage in Romans 5. So if you've turned there, Romans 5, verse 12, what I want you to notice, first of all, just in a quick overview of this, is that in the span of 10 verses here, the Apostle Paul repeatedly affirms the doctrine of original sin and makes this connection between Adam and our sin, and he does it with a succession of very clear statements saying the same thing every time in slightly different ways. Just to eliminate all possible objections, he repeats it in different ways. And he uses expressions like this, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin spread to all men. Verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Verse 18. One trespass led to, the condemnation, led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So five times in those verses, Paul clearly and categorically states that humanity's sin problem stems entirely from one act of sin, namely Adam's act of disobedience, and the ramifications of that are monumental. Adam's sin fatally condemned all of his offspring by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, so that's, that's clear, crystal clear from this text, right? Adam's sin corrupted all of humanity. It ruined human nature. That single act of disobedience, Adam eating the forbidden fruit, is the source of our sinful character. So you are not a sinner because you sinned. You didn't become a sinner when you first sinned. The opposite is true. You sinned because you were born a sinner. That is precisely what David is saying in that famous verse in Psalm 51 verse 5 when he says, 
I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. He's not suggesting that he was conceived in an act of sin by his mother. What he's saying is that he was a sinner from the moment of his conception. We were fallen from the time we were conceived in the womb, and the reason for that is traceable directly to Adam's rebellion. And furthermore, and this is, this is absolutely vital to get, I mean, this is the contested point and the one you must believe, the guilt of Adam's disobedience is imputed to his offspring. We're going to focus on this this morning. There, there's no other conclusion you can draw From this, by the way, verse 18, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. In other words, Adam's disobedience rendered all of his offspring guilty, subject to judgment and condemnation. In short, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all of his progeny, all men, and that's all women, of course, as well. And just an aside, by the way, this passage expressly confirms the unity of the human race. The, the world has, you know, stained our thinking with a lot of nonsense about racial divisions. Scripture always treats humanity as a single race. We are one race, different ethnicities, but one race. As Paul says in Acts 17, 26, God made from one blood every ethnos, one blood multiple ethnicities, we are not different races. Anyway, if you recoil from this idea of imputed guilt, it's my goal in this hour to change your mind, because this is a truth that's absolutely vital to the gospel. Paul's whole point in this passage is to defend the principle of imputation. He's saying the very same principle by which Adam's guilt is imputed to his offspring, it explains how it is that the guilt for our sins can be imputed to Christ and and how his righteousness can be imputed to us. And without that principle, without the principle of imputed guilt and imputed righteousness, without that, you, you literally have no gospel. Now, some preliminaries. First, a bit of history. The earliest serious, all-out assault on the doctrine of original sin occurred when the Pelagian controversy broke out at the beginning of the 5th century. Pelagius was an unknown sort of theological miscreant who rose up to champion the idea of human free will and saying that you are either righteous or unrighteous by your own free will choice. And he insisted that's how it has to be. It meant... He had to deny that all people universally are born with any inclination to sin. Now, think of this. Think this through. You cannot boast of absolute free will and simultaneously confess that you are born a sinner. The two things don't work together. If you're born a sinner, then you're, you're born with your will in bondage to sin. And that's what Scripture clearly teaches. If you, believe, if you want to champion the cause of, of absolute human free will, you have to deny that you are hopelessly in bondage to sin or that you were born a sinner. Those ideas are antithetical to each other. So Pelagius insisted that sin is a matter of individual choice, and he said, 
All it takes for a sinner to be righteous is sheer human willpower. You can decide by your own free will to become righteous. Now, our passage, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, was the centerpiece of Augustine's argument against Pelagius. Augustine in North Africa and also Jerome in Jerusalem were both contemporaries of Pelagius, and both of them refuted him. And they went to Romans 5 in order to do it. They also pointed out that Pelagius's doctrine left no meaningful place for divine grace in the salvation of sinners. Because if a sinner can harness his own willpower in order to make himself righteous, not only is the need for God's grace eliminated, the result will be a religion that hinges entirely on the sinner's own good works. And of course, that flatly denies everything Scripture teaches about how sinners are saved. And so the result of Pelagianism was a works-based religion. But the starting point and the defining feature of the Pelagian heresy is Pelagius' denial of the doctrine of original sin. You cannot deny original sin and avoid Pelagianism. Pelagian doctrine was, of course, speedily recognized as heresy and refuted, and the Pelagian system was formally declared heretical and Uh, on more than one occasion, actually first by the Council of Carthage in 418, and then by the Council of Ephesus in 431, and then by a succession of several church councils and confessions of faith stretching all across the history of, of church history, all across the centuries of church history. Every doctrine that is based on a denial of original sin has been rightly rejected by every branch of historic Christianity. It's not just a Protestant doctrine. It is not, as many people think, merely a Calvinistic doctrine. It's a Roman Catholic doctrine as well. It's an Eastern Orthodox doctrine as well, though they, they, they waffle on it sometimes. But every major branch of Christianity has formally uh, declared Pelagianism and the denial of original sin heretical. And again, that's appropriate. Any doctrine that starts with a denial of original sin is anti-Christian, sub-Christian, unorthodox, heretical, however you want to say it. The doctrine of original sin is essential to historic and biblical Christianity as much as the doctrine of the Trinity. Whatever form of doctrine you hold to is not truly Christian at all if it omits the fact that a single act of disobedience by Adam caused the ruin of the entire human race. And that is the inescapable meaning of Paul's discourse here on original sin in Romans 5. I hope you get the point. I'm saying that the doctrine of original sin is not a secondary truth. This is not an optional point of of the Christian faith. This is like the doctrine of the Trinity in that it's one of those core doctrines that Roman Catholics and Reformers both confessed and agreed on and defended. It is quite simply one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. In fact, I sometimes have quoted G.K. Chesterton, who I don't usually quote because he was a Roman Catholic, but he famously called the doctrine of original sin the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved, he said. Amen, of course, that empirical truth of humanity's fallenness is visible everywhere you look. Everyone sins. The entire human race has 
obviously been corrupted by sin. So how did we get that way? Why is the world such an evil place? And what's the remedy for the human dilemma? And Romans 5 answers all of those questions. There are some of the most obvious and troubling theological problems we, all of us, eventually ask about. And the answers Scripture gives point us to the doctrine of original sin. And if you try to do away with this doctrine, you simply won't be able to make good sense of either sin or salvation. And one other point by way of introduction. It is absolutely critical to understand that human fallenness is rooted in Adam's rebellion against God, and that it's that spirit of creaturely defiance against the Almighty is what makes sin so exceedingly sinful. It's a rebellion against God. In short, sin is an expression of of fallen humanity's innate hostility towards God. Romans 8, verse 7, the carnal, unregenerate mind by nature is hostile to God. And despite what you hear today, sometimes even from leading evangelical voices, sin is not evil because it fails to promote human flourishing. That's not where the evil of sin lies, because it's it fails to re- promote human flourishing, or it's hurtful to our neighbors, or whatever. The real evil of sin lies in the fact that it is defiance against the living God. That's the very definition of sin. First John 3, verse 4, sin is the transgression of God's law. Human flourishing isn't always innately good. Hell won't promote the flourishing of those who are sent there, and yet it's a righteous judgment against them. And I can't overstress how vital this is. At the heart of every destructive worldview is a twisted, erroneous doctrine of sin. If you misconstrue what sin is and and misunderstand why sin has rendered the whole world so dysfunctional, you will condemn yourself to a deadly, damnable system of belief replete with warped values and self-destructive ideas and no real means of deliverance. And if you look around at society at large today, is that not what we see? One of the main reasons I reject woke theology and critical race theory and intersectionality and all the currently popular notions of social justice is that all of those ideas stem from a worldview that sees the essence of human evil as human inequity or disadvantage, you know, an unjust distribution of poverty and privilege. That's what's really wrong with the world, they say. And everything boils down to a conflict, then, between those who have power and those who are oppressed. And it's a horizontal notion of sin. It's not a biblical way of looking at what's wrong with the human race. What's fundamentally wrong with the human race is not that people can't get along with one another. That's a symptom of the fact that things are wrong. But what's fundamentally wrong is that people in their fallen nature hate God and rebel against him. Even atheism, you know, is based on a faulty definition of sin. The atheist thinks that what's wrong with the world is religion. And by the way, that's not a totally far-fetched notion. False religion has indeed probably spawned more evil consequences than any other form of debauchery. But the solution is not to eliminate the concept of God. 
Because if you do that, you immediately erase all the moral significance of evil. You just get rid of it. And that opens the door for endless expressions of human depravity. And I'm convinced that most of what's wrong in the visible church today is also rooted in an inadequate or faulty teaching about sin. You look at the broad spectrum of uh, the evangelical movement today. Sin is a topic that has been almost totally ignored by evangelical preachers for decades, maybe for more than a century, ignored or downplayed in the early part of the 20th century, especially when revival was was revivalism was at its peak and you had you know mass crusades and and shallow preachers they never mentioned the doctrine of original sin because it was deemed too technical but you have in between that era and ours two world wars in the first half of the 20th century that made the problem of human evil an issue that nobody could ignore. But liberal religion was on the rise in the big denominations. And instead of facing the reality of human fallenness and acknowledging what Scripture teaches about human evil, the dominant view in mainstream churches was that what we need is to believe that people are fundamentally good and we can fix the problems with political solutions. If we just believe that people are good at heart. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about that. He said this, quote, The tragic fallacy of the past 100 years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment and that to change the man, all you have to do is change his environment. But then he added this, That overlooks the fact that it was in paradise where man fell. By the middle of the century, most evangelicals thought that the starting point of the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Compare that with the Apostle Paul. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's the opposite message. Frankly, a biblical treatment of original sin would have messed up the narrative. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But by the end of the 20th century with seeker-sensitive methodology in vogue and evangelical thought leaders convinced that even the mention of sin or hell, that's too negative-sounding. They simply ignored the subject of original sin altogether, and that is one of the major reasons the church is in such a mess today, the, the broad church. I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about the visible evangelical testimony to the world. And in fact, by the end of the 20th century, the evangelical movement was in the hands, the leadership of the evangelical movement was in the hands of uh, people who were four or five generations removed from any clear teaching on original sin. As I said, look for a book on the subject, a definitive work on the subject today, and you're going to come up dry. And incredibly, after all of that, we still, still to this day, hear people complain that evangelicals have too much to say about sin and not enough about tolerance or diversity or multiculturalism or social justice or some other currently stylish postmodern value. We need to talk about those things instead, we're told. And now we even have evangelical thought leaders <coughs> redef- sorry. <coughs> I did that for Darlene. 
She told me to be sure and mute it if I'm going to cough. Now we even have some evangelical thought leaders who are redefining sin so that concupiscence, you know, evil desires, inordinate sexual desires, even perverted sexual desires, same-sex attraction, these, we're told, are not to be viewed as sinful as long as the person who harbors those desires remains celibate. That's a common evangelical opinion now. And it's all a general softening of our perspective on sin. It's a calculated attempt to make sin not seem so exceedingly sinful. And, and it all stems from our failure to understand and affirm how thoroughly Adam's disobedience has corrupted all of us. So let's look at this passage in Romans 5. Albert Barnes, a commentator who, who wasn't exactly an Orthodox Calvinist, called this the most difficult part of the New Testament. And although I would disagree with Albert Barnes on several points of doctrine, I wouldn't argue with him about how difficult this passage is to understand and teach, the second half of Romans 5. It's not an easy passage. So let's approach it starting with the larger context of the first four chapters. Don't want to just skip those and pretend this comes out of nowhere. The entire epistle up to this point has culminated in the Apostle Paul's assertion that believers are justified, that is, they are accepted by God as righteous, <clears throat> not because of anything worthy in them, but solely because Christ's righteousness is imputed to them, Christ's righteousness. And imputation, this idea of imputed righteousness, the, the idea that the credit, the merit of Christ's righteousness is put on the ledger of the sinner. It's like an accounting term, imputation. This idea is the key to Paul's gospel presentation. But as I said, to, to start with, before he ever gets to that point, he spends those first two and a half chapters stressing the fact that all humanity is hopelessly sinful and fully deserving of God's wrath. And so that when God pours out his wrath on sinners, he is perfectly righteous to do so. So don't lose hold of that point. Paul's starting point is the universality of human guilt. It's one of the key elements of the doctrine of original sin. So rather than skim over it, Paul begins with it, and he spends a considerable amount of space and energy driving that point home, two and a half chapters. But then, starting with verse 21 of chapter 3, he begins to talk about a different aspect of God's righteousness. It's still about God's righteousness, but this is now, suddenly he shifts. So he's not talking about the righteousness by which God punishes sin. In verse 22 of chapter 3, he calls this the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Not against us, but for us. I like the way the New King James Version says it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all, <coughs> to all and upon all who believe. So he's talking about God's righteousness given to and placed upon all who believe. He's speaking of the righteousness that is imputed to believers. And in the passage that follows, moving into chapter 4, he explains all of that. Romans 4, 6. God credits believers with righteousness apart from our own works. He gives us credit, in other words, for a righteousness that doesn't really belong to us. 
He's describing a righteousness that's imputed to believers, credited to our account. And it is a flawlessly perfect human righteousness. So he can only be talking about the righteousness of Christ. And this righteousness gives the believer a right standing before God by clothing us in utter perfection. It's the utter perfection of Christ. And it's rooted in the fact that Christ has fulfilled all of the demands of divine righteousness on our behalf. So that even though we are sinners, we are brought into perfect harmony with the demands of divine justice. And therefore, we can stand before God justified, not because of anything we've done to earn it, but not even because of what God has done in us, but only because of what Christ has done for us. According to Romans 3.28, we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, a righteousness that is totally alien to us, a righteousness that exists completely outside of us, is imputed to us, and that becomes the ground on which we stand justified before God, apart from any good works or merit of our own. We sing that all the time, no merit of my own his anger to suppress. My only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness. Is that how it goes? And then through Romans 4, Paul expounds on this concept of the righteousness that's imputed to us. And as a matter of fact, everything Paul has to say in the first eight chapters of Romans hinges on this idea of imputation. It's vital to his soteriology. Now, here's a definition, because I keep using this word. And I want to make sure you know what it means. The definition, imputation, it's a forensic or or legal reckoning where one moral agent is credited with either the guilt or the righteousness of another. It's a, a legal principle that applies to corporate bodies where merit or liability can be transferred between the head and the members, And the gospel depends on this principle. The scripture says repeatedly that the sins of the elect were imputed to Christ, even though he was actually innocent of all those sins, he paid the penalty for them. And in a similar fashion, his perfect righteousness is reckoned by God to people who who are not actually righteous. Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. That's a shocking statement if you don't understand what he's saying about imputation. God justifies the ungodly. He imputes righteousness to them. So that even though believers have no righteousness of their own, because all our righteousnesses are filthy rags, we don't have any righteousness of our own, but we get credit for Christ's righteousness. And that's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says that for our sake... God made Christ to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, moving quickly through Romans 4. Notice, first of all, that the Apostle Paul says the sole instrument of our justification is faith. You can't obtain the righteousness you need through any work or ceremony, but only through faith. And he uses Abraham as his proof. Romans 4, verses 3 and 5. For What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting there from Genesis 15. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, 
If you want to work for your salvation, you will get what you earn. You don't want it. And verse 5, to the one who does not work, it doesn't mean he doesn't do any good works. It means he's not working for, to earn God's pleasure, to, to earn God's approval. He's not working for that, but he simply believes in God who justifies the ungodly. Again, there's God justifying the ungodly. For him, his faith is counted as righteousness. Righteousness is imputed to him, in other words. And so he says as plainly as possible that justification is acquired by faith alone. In in no sense, no sense, is our justification dependent on any works that we do. Faith, not circumcision, not baptism, not any other ritual or work, but faith is the only instrument by which we lay hold of justification. And continuing in chapter 4, then Paul cites also David to prove that all the Old Testament saints, both before and after Moses, all of them who were believers were dependent on a righteousness that was imputed to them. So that justification by faith is the only way anyone was ever saved. People weren't saved by obeying the law, even in the Old Testament. And the only way any of us can ever be saved is through a righteousness that we don't earn, but it's imputed to us by faith. We trust Christ as a sufficient Savior. And if you don't understand precisely what that means, then perhaps you haven't even come to faith yet. Trusting Christ as Savior means I stop trying to earn my own righteousness before God, depend on Christ's righteousness, and then let the fruits of my life praise the Lord, realizing that my good works aren't in any way meritorious. And the rest of Romans 4 is dominated by an ingenious argument that Paul makes to show that in, in that Genesis 15 passage, it's Genesis 15, 6, Abraham is declared righteous. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But he wasn't even circumcised, Abraham wasn't, until at least 14 years later. Genesis 17, verse 24. And in fact, Genesis 17:24 says... Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. So his circumcision clearly was neither the reason nor the ground nor the instrument of his justification. It came after he was justified. Justification is by grace through faith alone, period. So that brings us up to our passage, our chapter actually, Romans 5. And notice the apostle begins this chapter by outlining the benefits of justification. And notice, for believers, uh, he treats justification as a past tense reality. This is not something we're working for or hoping for or looking forward to. It's a past tense reality, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have now, right now, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Which clearly indicates, doesn't it, that justification is an event. It's not a process. A right standing with God is something all believers enjoy right now. Not something we merely hope for or look forward to in the far off future. But eternal life is the present possession of everyone who trusts Christ. In fact, think how often Jesus himself 
stressed that truth. John 5, 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. And in Luke 18, 14, we're speaking, you remember the parable of the publican who begged God for mercy because he was a sinner. He could only smite his breast and plead for mercy. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. (coughs) And, (coughs) sorry. And he promised, he promised heaven to the thief on the cross the moment the man repented. And all of that underscores the fact that justification is an event. It's not a process. It's a once-and-for-all legal declaration. Uh, I would compare it to the moment in a wedding ceremony where the, where the pastor or official says, I now pronounce you man and wife. Nothing internal to that couple changes, but instantly their standing changes. And our justification is exactly like that. And it's once for all, it's a settled, complete fact for all believers. And the Apostle Paul is careful never to portray justification as an ongoing process or a future hope. It's always, in his view, a finished transaction. Now, just look at those verses at the beginning of Romans 5, because... This will help you get into the immediate context of our passage. Paul says that because we're justified, we have peace with God, verse 1. We have access and a standing in God's grace, verse 2. We have a reason to rejoice in our trials, verses 3 through 5. We have complete reconciliation with God, verses 5 through 10. And again, all of those are present possessions for the believer. They're benefits of our justification that if you are a believer, you enjoy right now. Christ has already obtained every conceivable spiritual benefit on our behalf. And then in the midst of all of this, he keeps touching on the truth that as far as divine justice is concerned, Christ is our representative. He's our proxy. He's our substitute. He says, for example, verse 9, we are justified by his blood, saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son and saved by his life. And all of those expressions mean the same thing, that in view of God's justice, Christ is our representative. He stands at the bar of divine judgment as our proxy, and the full merit of his righteousness is ours by imputation. So think about the implications of that. If we're honest, I think All of us have to admit at some point that this whole idea of merit by proxy runs counter to the human intuitive sense of justice. How is this fair? Is it right to appraise one man by the merits of another? How can justice punish or reward one moral agent for the actions of another? And in fact, this is the very moral dilemma that makes the doctrine of original sin so hard for people to deal with if they approach it from a humanistic, rationalistic perspective. I mean, let's just put the hard question on the table. How can God hold you and me guilty for what Adam did? But when you find yourself asking that question, remember the very same question that that you're asking actually lies at the heart of our justification. How can God punish Christ for our sins? 
How can the merit of Christ's righteousness be imputed to us? And those are precisely the questions the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this context. To show how Christ's righteousness can count as merit for you and me, he goes back to the example of Adam and how we inherited his guilt. The proof we inherited his guilt is seen in the fact that we sin. And Paul is therefore using the imputation of Adam's guilt as an illustration of how Christ provides redemption. And that's what brings the doctrine of original sin into the passage that we're concerned with this morning. And I'm going to read the whole passage, beginning with verse 12. <coughs> Ten verses. And as I read, I want you to notice several things. First, it's immediately clear that he's drawing an analogy between Adam and Christ. And pay attention to that analogy, because you'll notice that sometimes he seems to be making a comparison, and other times it looks like he's making a contrast. And actually, I've got, I've got more than enough down here. Thank you. Do I, do I look like I need a drink? All right, hang on. It's not going to help. So sometimes it looks like he's making a comparison, and sometimes it looks like he's making a contrast. And I lost my place in my notes. Yes, I'm going to read. First, it's immediately clear that uh, he's, he's doing both of these things. He's, he's making contrasts and comparisons. He's showing that the means by which Adam's guilt comes to us is the same means by which Christ's righteousness comes to us. That's the comparison he's making. But at the same time, he emphasizes that the results of these two reckonings are precisely the opposite, and that's the contrast he makes. So it's a comparison and a contrast. Second, notice, as I read it, that in verse 12, he breaks off mid-sentence. And verse 13 starts a whole new sentence with a whole new point. And in fact, verses 13 through 17 are one long parenthesis where he interrupts himself. It's a slight digression. Something interrupted his thought flow, and he injects verses 13 through 17 into what he's been saying in order to lay a better foundation for what he was planning to say. And in fact, the King James and New King James Version actually include parentheses in the way they punctuate it. And I like that. It makes it clear that verses 13 and 17 are a digression. That's important because if you miss the flow of Paul's logic, you miss the meaning of the whole passage. But basically, this is how to read the passage. Paul begins a sentence in verse 12 that he never finishes. And then the the parenthesis of verses 13 through 17 is a logical detour that's interjected into what he was beginning to say. Then he returns in verse 18 to restate what he started to say in verse 12, and this time he finishes the sentence. And and if you don't follow the the pattern of his logic that way, if you don't get interrupted in your thinking where he got interrupted in his thinking, this passage will probably confuse you. So here's the passage, starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, And he doesn't finish the sentence. Just as that, therefore what? He doesn't finish it. He interrupts himself. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And that's the end of his parenthesis. He comes back to his original thought. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So let's look at this systematically from two sides. First, we'll look at the comparison that Paul's making between Adam and Christ, and then we'll observe the contrast he makes between them. So that's a simple outline. First the comparison, then the contrast. Now, obviously, from where most of us sit, it's a lot easier to see contrasts rather than comparisons between Christ and Adam. And yet, unless you see that both Adam and Christ fulfilled a similar kind of headship, then you're going to have difficulty understanding any of this. So let me begin by saying this, and this is Paul's main point of comparison between Adam and and Christ. Each of them stands in a specific role of headship, representing an entire class of people. Adam represents the class of people who are in Adam. Christ represents all those who are in Christ. And the same parallel between Adam's headship over the human race and Christ's headship over the redeemed race This is an idea that comes up repeatedly in the Apostle Paul's writings. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, Paul writes, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And again, that's not a statement of universalism. He's talking about all who are in Adam die, and all who are in Christ shall be made alive. And, And then Paul even refers to Christ as the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So, in other words, there's such an exact parallel between Adam and Christ in, in the role of headship that they had, such an exact parallel that the apostle, in essence, refers to Christ as the second Adam or the last Adam. Now, the importance of that parallel can hardly be stressed too much. Paul is saying that there's a correspondence between the way we fell into sin in Adam and the way we are redeemed from that sin in Christ. And unless you understand the fall, you'll never understand redemption because the parallel is so, so close. Your understanding of what it means to be in Christ is to a very large degree dependent on what you think it means to be in Adam. And everyone is either in Christ or in Adam. And it's one or the other. It can't be both. There's no middle ground. All in Adam die. All in Christ are made alive. All in Adam are clothed in guilt. All in Christ are clothed in righteousness. And the whole point of the passage we're looking at this morning is this. The means by which we become partakers of Christ's righteousness 
is an exact parallel of the way we became partakers of Adam's guilt. Our our relationship to Adam in the fall explains our relationship to Christ in his redeeming work. And in fact, Paul says in a paraphrase, or in a phrase at the end of verse 14, that Adam was a type, and he means a figure, an image, a living illustration of the one who was to come. Adam is the archetype. He prefigures Christ. He's like a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ. He's a living picture of the one who was to come. And, And so Adam stood in relationship to the entire human race like Christ stands in relationship to the redeemed race. He was the firstborn in his position and in his standing, and he is also the, and get this, he is the representative head of everyone in that class. And by the way, that Greek word type, that confuses people sometimes. Uh, it speaks of a die or a pattern from which a coin was struck. And Paul is suggesting that the, the nature of Adam's headship over the human race is an exact pattern of the headship of Christ over the redeemed race. They're like coins that were struck from the same die, exactly the same. So, what is the nature of that headship? This is really the key question. There have been a couple of ideas set forth about this. One of them suggests that because Adam was the literal father of the race, he is our head merely because we are his offspring. We're all related to him ultimately, and that's literally true. And according to this view, we inherit Adam's guilt because we were in him in some seminal form, When he sinned. In other words, we descended from him, and so his relationship as our first ancestor, and the fact that we are his offspring, explains why we inherit his fallenness. So that sin is passed to us because of our genetic relationship with Adam. And that idea is called seminal headship. And those who hold that view point to one verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, verse 10 as support for that idea. So keep a marker here in Romans 5 and flip over to Hebrews 7 for a minute. Hebrews 7. And here, the writer of Hebrews is making the point that Melchizedek belonged to a higher order of priests than Levi, the Levitical priesthood in the in the Jewish system in the Old Testament, and he's saying Melchizedek's priesthood was a higher form of priesthood. And this is the argument he makes, verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In other words, Levi was the offspring of Abraham, so in effect, he paid tithes to Melchizedek, when Abraham met him and paid those tithes. And so the writer of Hebrews says that proves that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And those who hold to the seminal headship of Adam make the similar argument, that we were all in Adam's loins when he fell, and therefore we fell with him, because we were in him genetically. Now, that is one fairly common explanation of Adam's headship over the race. It's called the seminal headship view. It's the wrong view, and it makes mincemeat of Romans 5 
And it also results in some other fairly serious theological difficulties. One is this. If we, were, if we share Adam's guilt merely because we are related to him seminally, why is this one act of disobedience so significant? Why just this one? Because, again, this wasn't literally the original sin, the first sin. Eve disobeyed Adam, disobeyed before Adam did. And if sin and guilt pass through to a person's offspring through the seminal relationship, why do we talk about original sin at all? Why aren't we all held equally guilty for everything Adam did wrong after that even, and along with everything every one of our ancestors did wrong? Do we accumulate every guilt that every one of our ancestors, uh, the guilt of every sin that every one of our ancestors ever did? In other words, if we share Adam's guilt because we were in his loins when he sinned, we're in big trouble. We must be piling up guilt from every wrong every one of our ancestors ever did while we were in their loins so that you and I would actually be more guilty in God's eyes than Cain and Abel were. And and let me say this also in passing. I don't believe Hebrews 7 is teaching that Levi really, literally paid tithes to Melchizedek in Adam. This is symbolic language. The point is that if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Levi descended from Abraham, then Melchizedek's priesthood must have been superior to Levi's. And Scripture makes clear that also that guilt doesn't automatically pass from parent to child. Scripture says so. Expressly, Ezekiel 18.20, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. And then, on top of all of that, the most glaring problem with the seminal headship view is that it destroys the parallelism Paul is making here in Romans 5. If he's saying Adam is our head because of our seminal relationship with him, there is no parallel with Christ. Because we have no seminal relationship with Christ. We are not his offspring. Nobody is his offspring. He didn't have any offspring. So there's no parallel sense in which we were ever in the loins of Christ. So under the seminal view, Adam is our head in one sense, and, and, and a physical, it's a physical, literal sense, and Christ, therefore, must be our head in some totally different spiritual sense. And what that is... Seminal headship people never actually define. But Paul is expressly teaching here that the respective roles of headship held by Adam and by Christ are perfectly parallel. It's the same thing. Adam stands with respect to those in Adam in precisely the same role of headship Christ takes with respect to those who are in Christ. That's what the word type means. Again, it's like a coin struck from the same die, so that Adam and Christ are parallel heads of their respective races. Adam, the head of the fallen race, Christ, the head of the redeemed race. So what kind of headship is it? It's a representative headship. Theologians sometimes refer to it as federal headship. Adam stood at the head of our fallen race as a representative for all of us, and Christ stands at the head of the redeemed race in an exactly similar, identical kind of headship. He is our representative. He's our federal head. He acts as an agent or a proxy on our behalf. 
And Adam was acting in a similar capacity when he fell into sin. And if that seems bizarre to you, consider this. That very same kind of headship is actually quite common in the affairs of men. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'm the executive director of Grace to You, and at times I act as a representative on behalf of the entire organization so that I can enter into contracts that affect everyone on my staff. If I agree to provide uh, the radio broadcast for a certain radio station, I actually obligate people who are on our staff to make and supply those recordings. I act on their behalf. And they become responsible, legally accountable, to fulfill whatever agreement I have made on behalf of the whole organization. That's a positive example. Here's a negative one. When Hitler invaded Poland, he thrust his entire nation into war. When he escalated the war and began dropping bombs on London, every German town and every German citizen became a potential target of Allied reprisals so that the atrocities Hitler ordered against Europe's Jewish population brought guilt and shame and a reproach on Germany that affected at least two or three generations of Germans. Representative headship, it's a weighty responsibility because if you make bad choices or do evil things, many people might suffer because of the actions of one, and that's exactly what happened with with, uh, Adam. By the way, those are just a couple of examples of how representative headship works. It's really quite a common thing. Fathers often act as the representative heads of their families. And the elders of a church sometimes act as representative heads for the body. recently read the story of a man who ran up a large debt and then abandoned his wife and went into hiding. And because she was covenanted to him in marriage, she is still legally obligated to repay his debts. Even though she took no active part in spending the money, she didn't commit any of the crimes he was guilty of, but she's responsible for the debt. So this concept of headship is actually more common in human affairs and legal affairs than you might think. So when creation was complete prior to the fall, Adam and Eve literally were the entire human race. Adam was given total freedom to eat any fruit in the entire Garden of Eden with just one simple restriction. And it should be obvious from the nature of that arrangement that this was a test. The human race, in its glorious and innocent and unfallen state, was being given a very easy test. And Adam was our representative in that test. He was the first and most perfect of all of us, And he, frankly, is the one we would have elected if we took a vote to choose a proxy for the test. He was the prototypical human. He was better, smarter, more honorable than any of his offspring. He was the fitting and obvious choice. He was the only choice at the time to act as the head and stand as the representative of the whole human race. And the test was a simple test of obedience, an easy test by any measure. Adam was provided with a world of delights and and told he could eat every fruit in the entire garden except one. Anything he wanted to do, he was free to do, but he was not to taste of the fruit of that one tree. And then acting in his role as the representative of our race, 
He failed that simple test. He ate the forbidden fruit, and that plunged the whole race into sin. And because he acted in the capacity of our representative head, we fell when he fell. Both guilt and corruption passed to the whole human race because of what Adam did. And that is what Paul is saying in our passage, Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, both the context and the grammatical construction of that verse means that we all sinned in Adam. All sinned. It doesn't mean later on everybody sinned. It means in Adam, all of us sinned. Paul is contrasting this this one act. He says it several times. One act of disobedience. This one sin. He's contrasting it with the sins you and I commit as individuals. It's, it's tempting, but it's dead wrong to interpret verse 12 as if Paul meant death spread to all men because all committed later sins of their own. But that can't be the meaning because the entire point of verse 12 is that sin and death pass to all humanity because of what Adam did. The extended passage repeatedly says that humanity's fallenness stems from this one very specific transgression. And so what he's saying is that Adam's guilt was imputed to all of us. Death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. Adam's sin is imputed to his posterity. Now, notice the proof that Paul is talking about imputed sin is seen in the very next verse. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. We'll come back to verse 13, but the the point here is absolutely essential. Adam's sin is imputed to his posterity. We inherit both the guilt and the corruption of his act. And, And let me show you, verse 18 proves we inherit the guilt because one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And verse 9 proves we inherit corruption from Adam's act By the one man's disobedience, the many were constituted sinners. We don't fall into sin individually. You get this? We don't fall into sin on our own because of what we do. We were born sinners. We were born fallen, and this explains why. When Adam fell, he was acting as our representative and our agent. Notice what he's saying. The headship of Adam exactly parallels the headship of Christ. So that both of them acted as representatives for others. Adam acting for all who are in Adam, Christ acting for all who are in Christ. And here's the whole basis for the principle of substitutionary atonement. What Christ did to redeem us, he did as our substitute and our proxy. And he fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. Then he died in our place to pay the price of our sin. And his role in redeeming us, therefore, perfectly mirrors and effectively reverses Adam's role in plunging us into sin. Notice how many times Paul draws this parallel in our passage. He starts to do it in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. And again, he doesn't complete that sentence. He interrupts it with this long parenthesis. 
But then in verse 18, he comes back to what he was about to say. In verse 18, this time he completes the thought. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Notice the parallel. Sin and judgment came upon those who are in Adam in the very same way that righteousness comes upon all who are in Christ. And in verse 15, he draws the parallel between Adam and Christ again. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And again, in verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, so much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 19, one man's disobedience versus one man's obedience. Again and again, Paul is stating that the relationship between Adam's sin and those who are in Adam is the very same kind of relationship that exists between Christ's righteousness and those who are in Christ. It's a principle of imputation. And notice the obvious parallelism in verse 19 between the expressions made sinners and made righteous. Paul just spent a chapter and a half making the point that believers are made righteous by imputation. So clearly what he has in view here is the imputation of Adam's sin. This is not merely the genetic transmission of, that, of sin's corruption. But Adam acted as the agent and the representative of all who are in him, just like Christ is the agent and the representative of all who are in him. When Adam failed, we failed in him. And when Christ died, we died in him. That's the comparison Paul is making here. So that's the comparison. Look now at the contrast between Adam and Christ. While they both stood at the head of their respective peoples as the federal head and representative, the proxy, the results of their headship couldn't be more different. The, the most clear and concise summary of the difference is actually found outside this passage in a verse I read earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And here in Romans 5, Paul is simply breaking that truth down into several aspects. So here's some of the contrasts he highlights in Romans 5. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Adam committed an offense that resulted in death for many, but Christ provides a gift of grace that results in life for many. Verse 16, the gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. <coughs> you see the contrast there? With Adam as the representative head, one guy sinned and many were condemned. But with Christ as the representative head, one sacrifice atoned for the offenses of the many and justified all of them. Verse 17, because of one man's offense, death reigned, but all who are in Christ shall reign. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation, one act of righteousness leads to justification. Verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be constituted righteous, declared righteous. So let's sum up all these contrasts. 
Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. Adam's headship brought condemnation to the people he represented. Christ's headship results in justification for the people he represents. Adam brought guilt and corruption on his people. Christ brings grace and a free gift to his people. Adam's headship brought death to everyone in Adam. Christ's headship brings life to everyone in Christ. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, let me comment on something that people inevitably ask about. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, so one act of righteousness will lead to justification. And both expressions use this both, both segments of that statement use this expression, for all men. There are some people who want to try to shoehorn universalism into that statement. Notice the words, all men. Occasionally, someone will suggest that the all men who were judged in Adam uh, refers to every, every one of Adam's offspring. So they reason, Paul says, one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. That, that, in the same context, the same expression has to be the same group of all men. But no, again, it's all who are in Adam versus all who are in Christ. That's the way you have to read that. Otherwise, you fall into universalism, which contradicts the hosts of scriptures. There's one more difficulty presented in this passage that I want to clear up. This one was the hardest for me to sort of untangle. Verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, what does the apostle mean when he says sin is not imputed when there is no law? Some have suggested that this means people weren't actually counted as guilty of any sin until Moses brought the commandments down from Sinai. But that's contrary to what we know from Scripture. It's contrary to common sense as well, and it's also contrary to the point Paul is making here. So let's analyze these two verses. He starts with a plain statement of his point. Until the law, sin was in the world. There was sin. There was indeed sin prior to the giving of the law, and people were held accountable for their actions. Though sin is the transgression of the law, people were transgressing the law years, ages, generations before, before Moses brought the law down from Sinai. There was indeed sin. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Some people read that and conclude that if sin can't be imputed in the absence of law, then people must not have been accountable for the sins they committed. But Paul's point is exactly the opposite. Sin is not counted where there is no law, but sin was clearly taken into account prior to Moses because, he gives the reason how he knows this, because people died. Death reigned. Therefore, there must have been some kind of law. After all, God judged Sodom. He judged the whole world with a flood. And in fact, Every person who ever lived from Adam to Moses died. He makes that point. And that's the ultimate proof that they were sinners. And sin was indeed imputed to them. They died. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, they're not sinning against a specific commandment, but they are sinning against the law that's written in their heart. So in other words, to say it, 
what Paul is actually, the point he's making here is that the universality of death proves the universality of sin. Even people who don't sin against a direct, clearly revealed commandment of God, the way Adam did, they still sin against their own consciences. They violate the law that's written in their hearts, according to Romans 2.15. And therefore, they prove their complicity with Adam by violating whatever moral principles they hold to. If human history teaches us anything, it teaches us this. Sin is a universal reality, and the greatest proof of that is the universality of death. And that's the point Paul is making in verses 13 and 14. Now, one other difficulty of this doctrine, a lot of people think that the doctrine of original sin implies the damnation of innocent infants who die. It doesn't, and, and we don't have time to explore all the biblical data on that. I did a whole message on that question several years ago, and it's on the Internet. You can download it. But here's a short answer to that question. I'm convinced that dying infants do go to heaven, not because they merit heaven by their relative innocence, but because God's mercy extends in a very special way to those who don't have the intellectual capacity to hear the gospel and embrace it by faith. At the end of Jonah, you know, the Lord declares his particular kindness to those who are too young to distinguish their right hand from their left. And Scripture is full of that, that God is particularly merciful to young children. That's a whole different subject. So I just want to tie this up now and conclude. I began by pointing out that Verse 18 teaches that in some sense, and to some degree, each one of us is tainted by guilt from Adam's sin. Some degree of guilt from Adam's sin, that original sin, the guilt is imputed to us. So how can someone else's guilt justly be imputed to us? Two reasons. One, as we've seen, Adam was acting as our representative head when he fell. And number two, Our own actions prove that we are in every sense in agreement with and in complicity with Adam's rebellion against God. If we could claim that we were innocent of wrongdoing, we could claim that it's unfair for Adam's guilt to be imputed to us. But we can't make that claim. And so God imputes to us the guilt that Adam incurred for the entire race, and we are justly held guilty along with him. There are always people who who want to resist this truth and complain that this sort of legal imputation is unfair and unjust, no matter how much biblical evidence you set before them to show that Adam's sin did indeed result in the fall of the entire human race. But consider this. Without this doctrine of legal imputation, we wouldn't have any hope of salvation. Christ was able to pay the penalty for our sins because the guilt of our sins were imputed to him. And if you rule out the imputation of guilt from one person to another, you destroy the very idea of substitutionary atonement. And furthermore, the principle of imputation explains how the merit of Christ's righteousness can be imputed to those of us who we don't deserve that either. In fact, we deserve that even less. But we are in Christ, and so his righteousness imputed to us. And that's the only way that while we are yet sinners... God can justify us and bring us into a perfect right relationship with him. So in an important sense, the doctrine of original sin is based on the very same principles as the doctrine of justification by faith. 
and for believers, the atoning work of Christ represents the, the absolute and ultimate undoing of Adam's fall, accomplished with precisely the same principles of justice. It's 180 degrees reversal and in perfect symmetry legally. That's why Paul brought up the subject of Adam's sin in the context of a treatise on justification by faith. One doctrine explains the other, and if you don't embrace the justice that imputes Adam's guilt to you, you'll never be able to embrace the doctrine of justification by faith, where our guilt was imputed to Christ and atoned for, and his righteousness is imputed to us for salvation. That's the gospel. You throw away the doctrine of original sin, you undermine the very foundation of the gospel. Understand the doctrine of original sin, and a host of other vital doctrines fall into place for you. It explains why we have this sinful bent. It reminds us that we cannot save ourselves. And most important of all, it makes sense of the doctrine of justification by faith. Like every other vital truth in Scripture, it points us to Christ, the second Adam, who made the only possible atonement for the sin of the human race and who provides us with the righteousness we need for a right standing with God by faith alone. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are confronted here with a truth of our fallenness And it moves us to confess, as David did, that we are inclined towards sin and have been since the moment of our conception. We would be hopeless without a perfect Savior whom you have provided in the person of your Son. You brought us up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. You've set our feet on a rock. You put a new song in our mouths. And may we now walk in newness of life for the glory of Christ our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.